Those of you who don't like hearing profanity, you might want to leave the room or choose a different podcast. We hope you don't, though. We hope you stick with us. This has been your Obscenity Warning. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by nobody. We actually weren't going to do an episode this week because we have a lot going on with the live show Wednesday night, which has happened already by the time you're hearing this, and with the Halloween episode next week. So we were just going to let this slide and not give you anything Thursday morning. But then we realized we had a couple fabulous interviews in the can already. One with Alex Wall, whose article for a Jewish weekly newspaper in the San Francisco Bay Area looks as if it's going to get a lifelong inmate sprung from prison in recognition of the great work that he's done starting college degree programs on the inside. So we're interviewing Alex Wall, who wrote the article that brought this Jewish inmate to Governor Jerry Brown's attention. And then we have this other interview with David Zilber, who is the Canadian Jew who is head of fermentation at Noma, the internationally famous restaurant in Copenhagen. So we didn't want those two interviews to molder for too long. We thought if we don't get them out this week, it'll be another month before you hear them. And really, it's better to get them out right now. So we thought, okay, we'll do an episode. But there was no way that Liel and Stephanie and I were all going to get into the studio in time to do some news of the Jews and to do our, you know, our, our banter. So I said, you know what, guys? Let me handle this because actually for some time I've been wanting to talk to the listeners. I founded this podcast about three and a half years ago. It was, it was my idea. And I wanted to take a little founder's prerogative to explain where I think we are as a podcast. And I'll try to be brief. And uh, this is from the heart. I'm sitting here in my basement. It's 1110 at night on uh, Tuesday evening. The live show is less than 24 hours away. I should get to bed. But um, but I'm just going to be uh, I'm going to be real with everyone and say um, a few things. First of all, I don't have to tell you again, especially if you're a longtime listener, how much this community means to me. Um, it's grown from a few thousand fans three and a half years ago to tens of thousands of fans, and yet it still feels incredibly intimate and warm. And I could never stop doing this podcast. And I should say that the Gentile listeners are as meaningful as the Jewish listeners, the intermarried listeners, the people who say, I listen because my friends are Jewish and I want to understand them better, or the people who say, you know, I'm a lapsed Muslim, but I think you guys are just fun. Uh, every quirky, eccentric, weird, unexpected member of the J Crew is as meaningful as the, you know, predictably Jewish urbanite who listens. And, um, and in a world that is increasingly balkanized, where liberals hang out with liberals and um, people don't tend to talk to conservatives unless they are themselves conservative and people of, of different you know, cultures and subcultures tend to segregate themselves, um, this is actually in its way kind of diverse. Like I don't know what percentage of our listeners consider themselves Zionist and which one's anti-Zionist. I know we have a, a lot of both. I know we have a lot of Sephardi and Persian listeners as well as Ashkenazi listeners. I know that we're big in South Africa and Australia, which is kind of cool. So this community provides me just a lot of um, a lot of variety within this kind of what what might seem on the outside to be a small world of people who want a Jewish podcast. But I wanted to kind of bring everyone up to date. You know, if you listened uh, a number of years ago when we started, this show was pretty predictably three parts. It was News of the Jews, Jew of the Week, Gentile of the Week. And that was it. Um, if you'll remember, there weren't even mazel tovs at the beginning. There were prayers. We offered prayers for the world for the first three or four episodes. And then I think we realized, okay, that's a little hokey and lame. Uh, and so we switched to mazel tovs, and that's been cooler. But we didn't have any listener mail at the beginning, and there was just a lot of stuff we didn't have, and it was very predictable. And if you look at it now, where we will get out of the studio and do pieces on a teenage convert in Georgia or on a chicken farm in um, California or at another farm in North Dakota or that um, Shabbat dinner that the nun was invited to in um, in was it Wisconsin or Michigan? Where's that sister from? Um, you know, we've gotten out of the studio a lot and now we are trying to be and I hope succeeding in being a less predictable podcast and one that is less based in a specific small studio in the Flatiron District of Manhattan. And that's not because we are ashamed of being three Northeastern Ashkenazi Jews talking in a small Northeastern space. We're not. That's who we are. The podcast is the three of us, and it always was It was always meant to be about the takes that the three of us had as people who are actually in some ways fairly representative of the spectrum of American Jewry which is predominantly urban and is predominantly Ashkenazi and is predominantly educated. 
Um, but within that, you know, there are people who are more tied to Israel and less, people who are more Zionist and less. And so we were presenting a particular group of three people and their opinions, and that is something we will always be. But we also wanted to say like, hey, let's go meet our listeners where they are. And our listeners are not just in New York, LA, Miami, Chicago. Our listeners are actually in all 50 states and in a lot of countries. And I don't think we're ever going to be the international Jewish podcast. I don't think we want to be as grateful as we are to have international listenership. But I think we can be the podcast for American Jewry. I think we already are, but we can be doing a better job of it. I think that we want to go see what all of you see in Iowa and Louisiana and New Mexico. I think we want to see the suburban and the rural and the urban. And I think that that means uh, getting out of the studio. I think we want to see the Haredi, the conservative, the reform, the reconstructionist, the renewal, the secular humanist Jewish, the completely secular and, and unaffiliated. It means getting out of the studio. So we've been doing more of that. And you've been helping with your incredibly generous donations in our funds drives and, and our advertisers have been helping and foundations have been helping. And I think we're getting there. I think we're getting to a place where we are going to be a podcast that if you listen for you know any slice of four or five episodes for four or five hours, you will get a sense of where American Jews and the people who are interested in them are thinking, uh, what they're thinking about, where they are intellectually, where they are emotionally at a given point in time. And that's what we're trying to be for all of you. And I think we're getting there. And your feedback has been incredible. Your letters have been incredible. But at the end of the day, um, you know, Liel and Stephanie and I follow our guts. And, um, and we do it in whom we hire. That's how we end up with Sophia and Noah and, and Josh and Shira. And we do it in what we choose to talk about. And we do it in where we go. And I hope that as time goes on, we go more and more to you. So this week, our first piece, it was taped here in New York, but it's about something that's going on in California. And here is our editor, Sophia Steinert Evoy. This week, I sat down with Alex Wall, a journalist and chef based in Oakland, to talk about a story she's been covering for the last few months, that of James A. White, also known as Jim and more commonly known as Sneaky, a Jewish man currently incarcerated in Vacaville, California. In her profile of Sneaky, Alex wrote about his long list of accomplishments over the course of his 38-year incarceration. But I don't want to give too much away. I wanted to make sure we got this interview out before the midterms because, well, they matter. And you'll see why for this story. Will you tell me a little bit about James? Why did you want to write a story about him? So James White um, is a Jewish prisoner and now sitting in Vacaville. He has done around 38 years. Um, he is, has a life without parole sentence. He was born in London. He had a cleft palate, and so he had to have numerous surgeries, and his birth parents couldn't keep him because of the surgeries, he thinks. And so he was adopted by an American Jewish couple, a wealthy American Jewish couple in Connecticut. And he was mostly raised in Connecticut, except he said that his parents were very emotionally distant. He feels that they adopted him because they felt they should have a child, not because they really wanted to be parents. And they sent him to boarding school in Wales, which just is so odd. And then they moved to Texas and he entered university. He went to Texas A&M for a couple of years, but then the Vietnam War started and he wanted to rebel against his parents, really. So he joined up and uh, signed up with the army. I see. I think he served in the army and the Marines. Um, he did four tours of duty in Vietnam. He is highly, highly decorated. He's what, He has a d distinguished flying cross and all these medals that I don't even know what they are. And yeah, all of his Vietnam buddies say that he was just a, a real hero. He came back from Vietnam and as many Vietnam vets will tell you, of course, um, you know, sentiment against those who were there w was very high. He ended up in California, fell in love with a woman named Nancy. He saw her watering her lawn and it was love at first sight. Married her. Unfortunately, Nancy had been married to two, twice before, and her second husband had been extremely violent with her. He had sent her to the hospital numerous times when they were married. And um, finally, he um, molested one of the daughters, one of his ex-stepdaughters by the time they were divorced. He had been threatening them as well. And James uh, decided he couldn't take it anymore, and he killed him. 
When you ask James about it, he says, I had to stop the problem as I saw it. He said the police um, had said they could put a restraining order on him, but um, until he did something, they couldn't really do anything about it. And, you know, he had been trained to take care of problems in Vietnam. So this is what he did. Um, He was no doubt suffering from PTSD at the time. This was 1981 when PTSD wasn't recognized as anything. It wasn't used in trials yet. It wasn't recognized as a disorder. Um, And so he got a life without parole sentence for this murder. When I first went to meet him, um, which happened last January, the be- January 2018, um, you know, we actually talked about the fact that, you know, he said some people pro- reading this would probably be interested in my Vietnam record and all of that. And he said, but I think, you know, he, he wasn't really talking like there was any chance of him getting out, but we knew that's why I was there. And um, and and he said, I think your readers and you know, will be much more interested in what I've done since I've been in prison. And I agreed with him. I said, I think that's going to be the main focus of the story. Um, I mean, he's been in so many different prisons over his 38 years. He started, I think, in San Quentin. I might get some of the places and dates wrong. But, you know, while he was there, he started a veterans group. That was his, you know, he's he's a community builder. That's his first objective anywhere he goes. And the first thing he always did was start a veterans group. Now, even this was controversial um, back in the day because veterans were seen as dangerous and they thought that they could be plotting something to like, you know, hurt people or whatever. And um, the veterans groups kind of followed him wherever he went and and he kept bringing them wherever he went. And finally he got to Ironwood Prison, which is outside of Palm Springs. And there he started the vets groups and there he um, started Um, Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous groups because the prison didn't have any. And he said that something like 80 or 90 percent of his fellow prisoners had drug and alcohol problems. And he didn't have either. But he could see that they would be useful to people. So that's just the kind of person he was. I would say the thing that, you know, he will be most remembered for is at the time he got to Ironwood, there was only one college program in a prison in California. It was at San Quentin. And it was of mixed success, apparently. Um, and so he had read a study about how better equipped men are, prisoners are when they leave, if they have some kind of college education. And he went to the administration and the administration said, well, it's a lot of paperwork and, you know, it's a big job and I don't know. And, and he basically convinced them that this is what they need to do. And he found a warden who would be kind of his sponsor. And the two of them just worked the phones and, and did all the paperwork and they got it started. And his program has been so successful that 1500 men in Ironwood have gotten degrees through that program. Now there's a prison in every, there's a college program in every prison in the state in California. I believe there are 34 prisons and every single one has a college program now. And it's largely based on his, the success of his. When you started talking, was it, or with him, Mm -hmm. um, did he think that he, did he still think that he would be there, that he would die there? Oh, absolutely. So when did that change? Well, um, I went in to interview him in January, wrote the story. It came out in late March. And, you know, I have to say for me, I put a lot of work into the story, obviously, and I felt like it just kind of landed. And, you know, I got a few comments on Facebook, but no one really noticed it. I felt very, um, you know, but I did hear from Jim. He was thrilled. And I only spoke to one former prisoner who had been helped by him. Um, But the thing he said was so moving that I still like I still, it brings me to tears every time. And he said something like, you know, he taught me about community in prison and, you know, in prison, it's every man for himself and you're always thinking so selfishly and you don't think about everyone else. And he said to me, you know, if you're going to get out and you're going to be a functioning member of society, you need to start thinking about community and helping people today. That starts now, not when you get out. And, um, you know, this is the kind of mentorship he was giving people in prison. So anyway, um, my story came out. I heard nothing until, um, I would say, uh, late May. There's a man named Shad, um, and Shad is a guy who, um, also a fellow Vietnam vet, who met Sneaky in prison in very early on. Shad has never been in prison, but he does a lot of speaking in prisons. And um, he started, it's called the National Veterans Foundation in L.A., 
Um, and it basically is a nonprofit that helps vets, many of them who have been in prison, just adjust to life and whatever benefits they need. And he helps a lot of homeless vets and um, just administers to any vet that is in trouble and needs him. Um, and he is originally from Birmingham, Alabama. So he has this thick, you know, Southern accent. And um, I'll never forget that day he called me and um, said, are you sitting down? <laughs> and I said, I can be. And he said, Sneaky just called me. And an investigator from Governor Jerry Brown's office just left the prison. He spent three hours with him. And he's going to call you to tell you all about it. But just stay by your phone. And so I stayed by my phone. Sneaky called a little bit later and told me that, you know, it was a Thursday. You normally only get visitors on the weekends. This guy had shown up um, and asked to see him. And they spent over three hours together. He tape recorded his talk. He wanted to he asked him a lot of the same questions I did, wanted to hear his whole story. When he first walked in, he said, I'm from Governor Brown's office. I'm here because me and all the senior staff read that article about you in the Jewish newspaper. I didn't, when I was writing the story, I didn't think there was a hope of him getting out. I, you know, I was writing a story about an interesting person. It wasn't a cause for me. It wasn't, um, trying to free him, even though when I heard his story, obviously I was moved by it and, and deserved that he, I mean, believed that he deserved to be freed. But after that happened, it was like, oh my God, like it, it you know, I think as a journalist, you, you like to think that your work can have an effect, but you most of the time feel like beyond ma making people happy that you write about them. You, I've never experienced anything remotely like this. My mom was saved by a Gentile woman from the Holocaust in Poland. And, you know, when you grow up with that in your family, you think your whole life, you think, what could I do that could possibly compare with what that woman did? If not for her, I wouldn't be here. And so to think that I could have even this much effect on someone's life, I feel like in some way I'm karmically repaying the woman who saved my mother. But I, you know, it's not, I, I don't want to put myself in anywhere near that circumstance of saving a life by, you know, taking a, a child into my home. Unfortunately, I'm not doing that right now with, I feel like there's so many people in our country who could use that right now and I'm not doing that. But I feel like to have this effect on one person's life, you know, the Talmud does say you save one life, you save the world. It's like saving the world. And I, it's huge. <laughs> yeah. So that was in May. Uh, the next thing we heard was that Governor Brown did not want the, you know, releasing someone with a life without parole sentence is a really big deal. Um, he didn't want it all on him in case Sneaky goes out and does something again. And so he decided to send it to the parole board to, to have them vote on it. So we next heard that the hearing was going to be held on August 21st. Um, you know, we got there, we did our thing. There were six, I think six of us who had been in prison, um, who all testified to how much he helped them. And, you know, the things I heard that day, everybody was in tears. You know, these men were saying, if not for Sneaky, I don't know where I would be. You know, one of them said, I'm making a six-figure salary and I'm a good husband because of him. And, you know, I heard from several of them about how their own fathers told them they were worthless and never going to amount to anything. And here comes this man in prison telling them, no, you can succeed. One of them has six associate's degrees because, you know, he ran out of time. I, you know, he still had to finish up the sentence and he did, got one and then he just kept going. And then they would often tutor each other. You know, the ones who would finish would tutor the others. And it just built this whole ecosystem of, of educated people in prison. And, you know, to hear these stories was just so incredible. Um, there were also some of his Vietnam vet buddies. One of them flew in from Florida to testify. Um, I testified and said, you know, when I started, I said that I, of all the people here, I've known him the least amount of time. And now I felt that this was a cause that I had no choice but to join. You know, I'm not a journalist in this anymore. Like I'm, I'm, I believe so strongly that he deserves to be freed. We testified starting at 1030 in the morning by three o'clock that day. We heard that they had voted unanimously to um, approve approve his pardon. And then we heard that it has to go to the state Supreme Court. So that's where we are right now. Um, we know that it's not on the docket. The Supreme Court is next meeting November 7th, and we know it's not on the docket that day. So, you know, it's just this its just this cruel waiting game. I mean, it's like the warden of his prison has already talked to him about the fact that he's leaving. His fellow prisoners are all saying, hey, I hear you're getting out. Like, it's a known thing that he's leaving pretty much. And from what we understand, the Supreme Court, since the governor and the parole board have already set this in motion and said yes, it's pretty much a formality that they're going to say yes, but they're still making him wait. 
And it's like, you know, the man is like <laughs> late 70s. How much time? You know, it just seems cruel at this point. Yeah. And so so it starts up on November 7th. Will they meet every day? No, okay. they only meet sometime. It's very hard to decipher. The website's complicated. And I had some, you know, one of his other people kind of explaining to me what, I don't know. We we like to think it could be later in November. Yeah. Um, I know that the governor pardons a ton of people around Christmas. We were hoping it wouldn't be that late. And also Brown is leaving office. I don't know if he leaves like right. um, if it's January 20th, like the president, but I it could be sooner. I don't know. And I think a lot of these stories are so important because, you know, one of the biggest operations of prisons is to put people out of sight. You know, they're in locations where you don't see them. Right. You don't hear from these people. They're cut off from the world. And it's I mean, it's 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 so wonderful that you brought this story out, but it's also terrifying because of how chance it was, you know, and how how many other sneakies are there? Exactly. Out there? And, no you know, idea. how many other, you know, and there's so many things about him that make him more like easier to sit with, you know that, you know, you wonder what if he had done something like a little different that we didn't agree with? Would he still be worthy of being let out? You know, it brings up all these other questions to me, at least mm -hmm. about criminal justice mm -hmm. that makes it really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, part of a, a, a wider conversation that we are, I think, starting to have in this country. Mm -hmm. um, are you going to continue to report on this or no, because you're, you feel you're too personal? No, I, I want to. Um, I mean, I would love to do a series on Jews okay. in prison. I, I totally would. And I know there are plenty of them in the area that I could be writing about. I am very aware that if James White were African-American, probably this would not be happening. I feel like it's important to acknowledge that. Um, and yet, you know, I'm only doing this story because he's Jewish. <laughs> Like several people said to me, why did you do this story again? And it's like, they forget he's Jewish. And to be honest, he doesn't even read very Jewish because, you know, he did wear a kippah for his whole time in Ironwood, which is a, another interesting piece. Are you interested in Jews in prison because of that's where you work? You work for a Jewish newspaper or is there something about it to you specifically that's interesting? Well, both. Um, you know, yes, I've always written for Jewish newspapers because I find Jewish life really interesting. And B, there aren't so many Jews in prison. I mean, there are some highly publicized, you know, Bernie Madoff is one I can think of. But in general, you know, I remember interviewing um, one of the Chabad rabbis who runs Aleph, which is this prisoner. It's like a prisoner's advocacy organization within the Lubavitch movement. And he even said, you don't find many Jews in prison for murder. Usually when Jews are in prison, it's for a more um, white collar crime. I, I do feel, you know, look, I don't want to sit here and say we Jews are better than everyone else. That's not what this is about. But, you know, I, look, it, what what is evident to me is that so many people who end up in prison do so because they didn't start with a, a the privilege that so many of us have to begin with. I mean, they started in really screwed up families and homes and poverty and that's what causes people to commit crimes in the first place so it's just the system where of course it's harder for those people to get ahead of course they're more likely to end up in prison and that's why Jews who are you know more upwardly mobile and privileged don't end up in prison as much well thank you so much for coming yeah. in to talk thank you for your interest I'm, yeah. I'm obviously thrilled to talk about it it's yeah. really one of the most exciting things that's ever happened to me like I said, I, I love how unpredictable, unpredictable life can be in that, you know, last year at this time, I had never heard of James White. And this year, my this has become the year of sneaky for me. You know, we're almost at the end of this year. If he gets out, you know, like I wrote the story in January. I first heard about him in like November last year, got to prison by January, wrote the story. And, you know, by the end of this year, hopefully he'll be freed and it really will become the year of sneaky for me. That was Alex Wall, contributing editor at J, the Jewish News of Northern California. And hopefully we'll be getting you some updates in the weeks to come, and potentially even hearing from Sneaky himself. Much thanks to our editor, Sophia Steinert-Evoy, for talking with Alex Wall at our offices in New York City.
Toronto native David Zilber is a chef and photographer. He is the author of The Noma Guide to Fermentation, including koji, kombuchas, shoyus, misos, vinegars, garams, lacto ferments, and black fruits and vegetables. He's cooked all across North America, but he's now at Noma, the famous restaurant in Copenhagen, where he's been since 2014. He's been the director of its fermentation lab since 2016. And in October 2018, he sat down with my co-hosts, Stephanie Butnick and Liel Leibowitz at the Tablet offices. Here's that interview. I am very excited that we are here with David Zilber. He is from the award-winning restaurant Noma in Copenhagen. He is the director of the Fermentation Lab there and is a co-author with Renee Redzepi of a new book called The Noma Guide to Fermentation. Hi, David. Hi. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I think for this interview, we should use your full name. Yes. Will you tell us what it is? I won the most Jewish name on the tour bus when I did Birthright which was funny, David Chaim Jacob Zilber. So David Chaim Yaakov Benzion Israel Zilber, how does, <laughs> how does a nice uh, Jewish boy like you get from, get from Toronto uh, to the world-famous temple of hot cuisine, mm-hmm. Noma? Uh, you work your ass off, and then I hope that pays off. I've, I've been cooking for 15 years now, so it's almost half my life. and. Um, yeah, I, I'm Canadian. Uh, I've worked through... You say that almost apologetically. No, I, I'm i sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'd worked my way through some of Canada's best restaurants. Um, and at my last post, I was the sous chef of Canada's best restaurant. And we'd won those awards. Um, and that was that was an amazing team and an amazing time in my life. But I still wanted more. And I didn't what restaurant like, is that? It was called Hawksworth Restaurant in Vancouver. Um. I still wanted more, and I was I was kind of being offered positions uh, to open my own restaurant or, or become a chef de cuisine somewhere, and I I still felt I hadn't learned enough. So um, I sent resumes out to a few very good restaurants around the world. Uh, Noma was one of them, and they got back. So that's that's kind of a a weird position because in our age of you know chef celebrity, you would think that the temptation would be to go and say like, oh well, you know, I'm I'm one of those guys. I, I want to play, and, and yet you perhaps in a very Canadian fashion, like, no, I still have a lot to learn. Was that, did you ever consider uh, just making the move or was it always clear to you that you wanted another step on the ladder of of apprenticeship? The temptation is there. You see a lot of people kind of like tap out of the game young to start their own thing. Um, And you also see them struggle. So, you know, it's a bit of a trade-off, you know, you, I don't mean to say that you can feed your ego because you can feed your ego by working for someone great as well but um it, yeah the temptation to, to kind of venture out on your own and spread your wings and and become a fledgling um you know is often balanced with like the struggles of just being like being strapped for cash and having no money and having no support and, and like you know slaving in the restaurant day in day out yourself and watching your vision kind of get swallowed by just running a restaurant it, it's an extremely cutthroat business and i knew at at the age of 27 or 28 when i when i moved to copenhagen that there was a lot more for me to learn. So, you know, slow and steady wins the race, as they say. And so you walk in to, to Noma, yes. uh, internationally celebrated, often crowned best of the galaxy. Give us a rundown by, by numbers of, of what that operation looks like. How many kitchens, how many chefs, how many? <sighs> well, today, oof, you would walk into that. It's a gorgeous uh, building. It's, it's built into this old decommissioned, once derelict uh, munitions bunker that's built into uh, an old Viking uh, fortification (laughs) on a lake. And, uh, you know, it's this long gray concrete building. There's greenhouses in front. And then uh, these gorgeous new kind of village-like little huts of of architecture uh, that form the actual restaurant, all connected by glass roofs. Um, Inside there, you have 100 employees, probably about 60 chefs, half of which are interns, picking everything from rose petals to cleaning ants to shelling pumpkin seeds to making tofu to <laughs> de-feathering ducks and cracking open their skulls. I mean, it's everything. It is, it is a very special restaurant that goes to extreme lengths to make food, to, to really push food to the limit. 
So at a certain point, so you're working there and then you take over as director of fermentation. You basically build a fermentation lab. What, what does that even look like? Hmm. Well, at first glance, it kind of, well, it doesn't really look like a kitchen. Um, the lab is, uh, sits behind basically four panes of glass, two of which are double sliding doors. And that's kind of my chalkboard. So it, it definitely looks like a mad scientist laboratory. As you see this white chalk marker with diagrams of, you know, the Krebs cycle or what yeast does when it, uh, ferments sugar into to ethanol. Um, and then inside there, there's kind of the central workbench where we actually, I mean, it's a kitchen. We do cook food. Um, <laughs> you would be surprised sometimes, I know. Um, and on on one half of this room, we have some very standard equipment, an oven, a stove, a dishwasher, a sink. And the other half looks like kind of breaking bad, yeah. you know, a rotary <laughs> evaporator with tubes of pink or green antifreeze running through the kitchen, um, an ultrasonic homogenizer and a, a wall that consists of something called a supercritical fluid extractor that goes 88 miles an hour. Now, at what point do you become acquainted with the supercritical food extractor? What, what's the name again? A supercritical fluid extractor. It's what the perfume industry uses to make smells. At what point do you uh, do you acquaint yourself with that? Because you know most chefs growing up, that's not you know part of the vocabulary. No. You, you've got like a PhD in in these uh, arts. At what point do you start learning about the machinery, and, and how do you go about doing that? Um, I've got a little personal hashtag called "Stay Curious," <laughs> uh, and and that's my motto in life. Uh, at 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 Noma, I mean, I. Yes, I do work in something called the fermentation lab, but its other nickname is the science bunker. And while we are tasked with primarily using science to peer into the realm of, of fermentation and find new techniques and new possibilities within that realm, um, we're not just relegated to that. So we also just deal with food science and say, okay, well, how can we change states of matter? What can we do to coax flavors out? And it is always in the pursuit of flavor, maybe in a bit of a departure from the molecular gastronomy of the early 2000s, but you know, we use, we employ science maybe more so than um, El Bulli or Arzac ever did to search for flavors, not just kind of make neat hat tricks, not that I'm denigrating those restaurants for, for the paths they forged, um, but it's always in the pursuit of flavor. So something like a supercritical fluid extractor, which is this kind of Willy Wonka-esque contraption <laughs> connections of, you know, one millimeter tubes uh, from one machine to another with a computer screen and three giant tanks of carbon dioxide feeding into it. Um, I, I, I started reading up on that technology because at some point the, the ferments that I was bringing to the test kitchen weren't different enough that it was getting them excited. You can make every variety of miso on earth, but at some point from a functional standpoint, they're all going to serve the same purpose in a kitchen like Noma. So I had to look elsewhere to keep myself interested in my own job and to keep impressing Renee in the test kitchen with new kind of cool toys. If you want to make piso, yeah, the, the pea miso, yeah, uh, pea miso, you have to, you have to really step up the game. So, so was it, was there an element of, you know, what do I do for an encore? Like, how do I of wow course. them today? So yeah. tell, tell us some of the greatest hits. The greatest hits. Yeah. Oof. Some of the weirdest shit that you concoct. They'd be like, oh my God, I can't believe it's an actual plate. Oh, well, right now there's, um, I mean, the mold pancake of last season. So th this is, this is funny. Um, it, creativity in Noma is extremely capricious. It's extremely organic. And I was tasked with R&D for the vegetable season to explore moldy foods. We didn't really know what that meant. I don't know. At first, I was trying to grow mold on kind of like dried in fruits and vegetables. Kind of worked. Wasn't that delicious. And at some point, someone's like, oh, well, maybe we could just do like fruit roll up and grow the mold on that. Tried it. Didn't really work. And then we're like, okay, well, is there something here? What else? What could we grow this mold on in a sheet where it would work? I'm like, oh, barley. and then you do the R&D. And basically, you end up with this one millimeter thick sheet of barley almost as if it was like phyllo dough. You inoculate it with the same mold that uh, all of Japan uses to make sake and, and miso and rice wine. Um, and then you have this kind of like fuzzy, velvety white carpet that tastes of honeysuckle and, and kind of like sweet apricot. 
but on your tongue feels like, you know, licking a suede bag. <laughs> that was the wrapper for an ice cream sandwich at the end of the meal uh, for the vegetable season, wow. which we run from uh, June until September. Um, so that was a fun one. That's definitely a weird one. For right now, I would say that the extract of forest floor is, is my most favorite thing. <laughs> so we're in game season right now, game and forest season. Um, and I literally have the foragers go into clearings in the forest, look around and just bring me back, you know, a, a kilo of what, of, of the same proportions of the forest they're in. So they're like, okay, there's this much tree. There's this much like moss. There's this much earth. They bring it back. I grind it up. I put it through the supercritical fluid extractor. By the way, when you dispatch them, do you, do you like, bring me a kilo of forest floor? Yeah. Do you have, well, I, I don't use like Moses voice, but. <laughs> You should. Yeah. You've already sent the interns. The <laughs> um, but that one is quite cool because it, it really, it, it tastes like lying down in a clearing. Wow. I love that. So there's something this, that's really interesting about this book is that it's, you know, it's, it's a cookbook, but it's also a guidebook to understanding fermentation and how mm-hmm. you guys use it in this very, very, very high, high powered way, but also how people can bring it into their homes. So I'm, I'm curious, can you give us like, your base explanation of fermentation, the way sort of the book describes it? Yeah. Uh, Fermentation uh, would be the transformation of one food into another via a microbe. That could be a bacteria, that could be yeast, that could be a fungus. And sure, that definition works for fermentation. It also works equally well for rot. You could have your compost heap being transformed into, well, it's not another food, but it's still transformed by way of microbes. Um, But the big distinction is, did a human want it to happen? So with fermentation, you can definitely say, okay, I employed this microbe. I chose what got to live in here. And then my food was transformed. Juice became alcohol or, you know, rice became sweet porridge. Um, And I used microbe X, Y, and Z to do that. I am a fermenter and this is a fermented good. The amazing thing about this, I mean, there's so many amazing things about this book, and this book is really going to get me in, into trouble in, in my <laughs> married life because now part of my already ridiculous kitchen is going to, you know, smell very different. Yeah. Um, with so much of what's going on in, in, in cooking, especially home cooking right now, being geared towards saving time, like here's the Instant Pot, it could make something not in three hours, but in, you know, 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. Your book is the exact opposite. Yeah. I mean, every recipe almost is like, do this, do this. Wait 17 days. Yeah. And then um, there has to also be like a kind of philosophical disposition, right? For, for someone who deals with fermentation, patience has to be a big part of the game. Is, how, do, how do you deal with, with this waiting so long for results? This, this culture of like incessant newness or, or this, this, this need for speed that we experience today. Um, it, it's tough to say where it comes from like an ever accelerating an, an ever accelerating human culture where people are more connected than ever. But it, I find it funny when people say, Oh, I don't have six weeks, but everyone has six weeks. It's not like six weeks isn't going to come, <laughs> you know? Um, so it, it is kind of this like mental flip of the switch that goes very much against the grain of the modern era where, you know, you have to invest yourself in something and care for it and, watch it transform the actual work of making fermented foods is just work it's quite menial kitchen labor it's a bit of chopping it's a bit of mixing it's okay weigh something out put it together pack it away right and then just let it sit um on stage for for this book tour that i'm on right now the reason why i'm in new york right now you know i I make fermented blueberries for four people's eyes and it takes about one minute to mix blueberries with salt and put it into a mason jar but then the joke is that, well, actually watching it come to fruition is about as fun as watching paint dry. Right. But that's not the fun part of fermentation. The fun part of fermentation is the payoff. When it is finished, when you taste it and you say, oh, I, I did this. I had some say in why this is the way it is now. Oh, I know. The first time I made kimchi and, and tried it, you know, five days in, a week yeah. in, two weeks in, it was amazing to it's see it evolve. It's incredibly satisfying. Into- how, how does this fermentation thing uh, square with the food you grew up with? What did you eat? I mean, what, what did your grandmother cook? Oh, yeah. What is comfort um, food for you as a child? That's, it's a mix of things. So my mother is from the Caribbean. 
Um, my father is an Ashkenazi Jew who was born in Montreal, uh, like right after the war, after my grandparents had to flee Poland. Um, and they met, uh, my mom converted and me and my sister were raised Jewish, um, a Jewish household, but it, it's not like she like converted and forgot how to cook Caribbean food. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, they're like Kugel only. N- yeah, no. Um, but my, my grandmother, so I grew up in Toronto, but my grandmother stayed in, in Montreal, um, taught my mom a lot of fun tricks. And so my mom has a pretty fierce repertoire of, you know, some, some really good Polish dishes from Gewelta fish to matzo ball soup and, and, and beyond. Um, yeah. So it, it is this weird mix, you know, I, I very much remember eating, um, my grandmother's matzo ball soup around the high holidays and also my mom's, you know, Palau or, you know, kingfish and bakes, you right. know, very, very Island dishes, if you will. Um, and that's my childhood Two two cultures kind of colliding. Was there fermented food in my house? Insofar as there's fermented food in everyone's house, it's not like my mother had little projects going on underneath the cupboards. I will say, though, that she did have um, a cupboard full of her favorite hot sauces, most of which were <laughs> fermented, not that you would realize them to be uh, at such a young age if I was you know, a kid back then. But you're already geared towards thinking about food as this kind of cross-cultural, boundary-breaking thing. Absolutely, absolutely. And growing up in Toronto... It's extremely multicultural. And I mean, my crew of best friends that I grew up with from elementary school all the way through high school, um, it was a complete mix. I mean, it was me, uh, a black Jew. Uh, One of my friends was a Romanian Jew. Then I had Paul from Taiwan and then Justin from South Asia. So, and, And you would go to each other's houses and you just eat each other's foods and people's moms would cook for all four of us. And you just grew up thinking that every culture was culture. And it's rich and informative. So you grew up in this very diverse sounding environment. Now, when you tell people that you're from Toronto, that you're Jewish, that you're also biracial, do people just bring up Drake all the time? Yeah, and is it the most the, annoying thing in the entire world? You know who brings it up more than anyone? Renee. Renee Redzepi, my boss. Really? <laughs> yeah. He introduces me and he's like, hi, this is David Zilber. We're going to make him the second most famous black Jew from Toronto. That's his line. That's amazing. So... I was thinking it was like Jewish podcasters who were going to bring it up. Well, you just did. So. <laughs> I mean, really, the <laughs> Thank second. You for that. Can, why not go for the first? Uh, yeah, I maybe think I could topple. Infinitely them. more interesting than Drake. <laughs> but I always ask people from Toronto because you're within the same. You know, he's like a year or two younger. Like, yeah, we used to take the subway together. Really? Yeah, he would finish Degrassi, uh, and like it, all, the whole cast would be going back uptown to wherever they live. Hold on, the whole cast of Degrassi took the freaking subway. Yeah, it's Toronto. I mean, what <laughs> do you think they're going like to get driven so around in limos? They're like fourteen-year-old really? kids. <laughs> Can't even afford like a production van to drive them around. It was, it was, yeah, it was kind of funny. So do you feel like that flattens the experience in some way when people are like, oh, you must, oh, you must know Drake, but you actually like did know Drake? No, no, I didn't know him, but you would, you would see like, oh, there's, there's wheels or whatever. Maybe that was the kid from from Burger King. I don't know. Um, And, and all the other cast. uh, No, but it's just, yeah, that's just Toronto. It's not, it's a big city. It's not that big a city. So to get back to Noma for a second, uh, as much as it is loved uh, by by many, especially the fortunate ones who've you know had the pleasure of, of tasting it, there's also I think a counter narrative to it of people saying, "Come on now, I mean forest floor bacteria, that's awesome, but but why not cook you know real food? You know what's the whole deal with the whole you know showcasing science, just like trickery, wizardry? Uh, you know it's time you got back to elemental stuff." Is that kind of uh, argument silly to you? Is it just uh, limit, limited in its imagination? Or do, or do you get this kind of... No one says that when they eat at Noma. That's the no, thing. That's the thing. You, you Once once your butt's in that seat and the food starts, you don't... It's not, it's not a... It's not a... I mean, it's a production, but it's not a show. Like, you you sit there and you taste things for what they are. Um, and that's, that's always been the way that Noma has approached food. Um... You know, you could definitely call Rene an auteur. He has this like fierce vision that needs to be manifested in the world. Um, and he has a hundred people working for him to, to make that a reality. But things aren't disguised. You know, it's, it's Noma is, is incredibly raw in how it tries to translate, um, to translate that vision through food. And it's not like you're eating things and being like, oh, well, what is, why do they have a science lab? 
because once you're sitting in that seat, things just taste incredibly delicious, but they also taste incredibly of what they are. So in the new book, you you recommend you actually have this kind of recipe on how to build a mini fermentation lab at home. Yeah. How, how, how does one go about doing that? And, go, and how will it change my home cooking? You go down to Home Depot, you buy yourself a plug and play thermostat, a heating blanket, a styrofoam cooler, and a humidifier. And you go home and you start growing mold in your house. It's really easy. It really is. You know, I give, I give, I give you the step-by-steps and, you know, there's an illustrated, you know. And how will it change my, my, my routine? You'll have a new hobby. <laughs> you'll have something that you'll really want to get into. And like, you'll check up on it every morning and you'll, you'll, you'll go through the motions and you'll look up videos on YouTube of what other people are doing and you'll get caught up in it and you'll start cooking with it. And it's, it's the joy of making your own food. So one final question before we let you go, what like traditional Jewish food would you like to give the Noma treatment? Hmm. Like a deconstructed gefilte fish essence. Fermented fish aspic. Yeah, no, Lutka's sour cream and applesauce is just like you could you could take that. You could that could go next level. I would love that. How? Make black applesauce. <laughs> There's a recipe for black apples, kind of an analog to black garlic in the book. That would be great. You could ferment the potatoes before you grate them. And then, you know, it'd almost be like the sour cream was in the latka. I love latkes. There's a comfort food for you. Do you make them? Yeah, I do. I do. I make them for breakfast on the weekends. So you're like in Copenhagen making latkes. Mm -hmm. Living the dream. Living the dream. Hanukkah 2018. I think we all know what we should be doing. (laughs) Making grandma proud. David Zilber, thank you so much. The book is The Noma Guide to Fermentation. It is awesome. Um, And good luck with the rest of your book tour. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was fermentation maestro David Zilber talking with my tablet colleagues, Liel Leibowitz and Stephanie Butnick. That's an interview I very much wish I could have been there for. Hey, thanks, J. Crew, for joining us for this wonderful episode. I'm going to wrap up by reading one letter and then offering, in place of the Mazel Tovs, just some big thank yous. But here's a letter we got that, that really begs to be read uh, at almost its full length. Dear Stephanie, Mark, and Liel, this is more or less a thank you. I'm sure you get many emails like this, but I wanted to express my immense gratitude for unorthodox. This summer, I've started to try to get in touch with my Jewish side, which I affectionately dubbed a very Jewish summer. I grew up Muslim and a little Christian to an extent. My Jewish lineage comes from my mother's side, and I've never really registered my Jewish heritage until my last year of high school. Like, sure, I went over to my uncle's for Passover and Hanukkah. He had converted to modern Orthodox a little before I was born. He and my mother had grown up Christian. And sure, I was gifted a Star of David necklace once, but no one ever confirmed that we were Jewish in any way until high school when one of my older cousins did, in fact, confirm everything. I feel like I should have figured it out before then, but see, I'm also half Indian and we celebrate a lot of Hindu holidays without actually being Hindu. So doing stuff like celebrating different religious holidays wasn't something that I ever questioned. I never really ventured to learn anything until now because in part, I felt like I had no right to consider anything Jewish because I had not grown up Jewish. And it felt like an incredible betrayal to claim my Jewish heritage when I don't feel the weight of tragedies like the Holocaust. Because while I know what it feels like to bear the weights of ugly, destructive hate, I've never known it on such a massive level. But, but look, obviously I'm slowly starting to learn and I'm turning my very Jewish summer into a very Jewish autumn and winter. A shout out here to my Jewish friends who encouraged me. I found a congregation that I really love, and I think I'm going to start attending Shabbat and talking to the rabbi come next year once I get my life a little more sorted. Conversion is currently not on the table for me, but I do think I want to start leading a Jewish life, if that makes any sense at all. What I mean about leading a Jewish life is, well, I think what I mean is the warmth. Mark, Stephanie, and Liel, when I hear you guys talking about Jewish anything, whether it's discussing certain holidays or your own lives, or just those conversations you have with your guests, there's always so much warmth and love in your voices. And I think I need a little bit of that warmth, a little bit of that sense of belonging. But wherever I end up, eventually converting or deciding it's not for me, Unorthodox will have a huge claim as being part of my journey, because without you guys, I wouldn't know so much about Jewish life. So I'm just going to leave y'all with some blessings my grandmother says to me every Eid and Navroz. And honestly, is there a better way to say thanks than with blessings from another God? I think not. So here goes. May Allah bless you with spiritual peace and health, with happiness and success. And may you do well in all your endeavors. Inshallah, peace be upon you. Warmest regards to, T-W-O, period. To then added in a postscript that that's 
a pseudonym he uses sometimes. And you know what, too? That's fine. We know you're a real person. We believe in you. And you know what? I think I speak for Liel and Stephanie when I say that we're happy to be here for you and to be here with you. Okay, so instead of Mazel Tovs this week, I have the blessing of the whole gang of Stephanie and Liel and everyone else to offer some thank yous. Let's just take this moment to thank the unsung heroes. One of my favorite podcasts, Hidden Brain with Shankar Vedantam, he always thanks the unsung heroes. So I'm going to thank um, the the two wives and a husband, Sid and Lisa and Ben, who who uh, Lee, who lose us a lot to uh, to unorthodox and sometimes for days at a time when we go out on the road. So so thank you, thank you for holding down the assorted forts uh, while we're gone. I want to thank Tablet Magazine. We don't talk enough about how we are grounded in this extraordinary magazine that you can read every day at tabletmag.com. Uh, our publisher, um, Morty Landown, and our executive editor, Wayne Hoffman, and our editor-in-chief, Alana Newhouse, and our director of business development, Gabe Sanders. These people, they really support us. They keep us going. They help us raise money, and they kind of let us do pretty much everything. I don't think one time has any one of them told us not to run something or, after listening to the show, told us that we shouldn't have run something. So, um, think about that. Chew on that for a moment. Uh, me personally, I want to thank my poker buddies. I want to thank my dogs, uh, Minnie and Archie. And um, I don't know who all is listening out there, but every once in a while I get a letter from an old friend who uh, has reconnected with me on the podcast. And I want to thank all of you and the ones who haven't reached out yet. I want to thank you too. I want to thank the interns we've had. I want to thank the Starbucks on West 26th Street. And I want to thank the J Crew. I want to thank all of the people who listen faithfully, who recommend us to your friends, who subscribe because that helps our numbers and that brings in ads and that allows us to keep going. And I also want to end by thanking the letter writers. It's like, it's a weird and curious thing to sit down and write a letter to a podcast, but we really do read them all, and they really do give us such immense joy you don't even know. Thanks, guys. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. You can ask for our newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and putting newsletter in the subject line. We often come to you live to book us or to advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross at jcross, that's cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. And you should wear unorthodox shirts and onesies and stuff. I mean, onesies only if you're really small. And you should carry unorthodox tote bags and you should put unorthodox coffee cozies and mugs around your coffee. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt for all of our swag. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast and on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Our show is produced by Josh Cross, Shira Telushkin, and Noah Levinson. Our editor is Sophia Steinert Evoy. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Please join our Facebook group. There's lots of fun to be had there. Our social media intern is Elzar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. And our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Barry Gelman of United Orthodox Synagogues in Houston. We're coming to Houston for a live show in early November. I hope Barry's there, and I hope he brings lots of Jews with him. And we are nothing without Argo Studios in the Flatiron District. Shalom, friends.